In light of everything that happened last week in Newtown, Connecticut, we've started to hear some people suggest their solutions. You know, we've heard that we need more guns or less guns, uh, more laws or less laws. We, we need less violent video games. We need more training for our, our sons into how, really be, how to be masculine. We need more armed guards in schools. And so people are throwing out all kinds of suggestions, but also there are some people starting to throw out some really hopeless thoughts. Like where they're saying, you know, we may be able to diminish the number of murders that are out there, but ultimately we won't be able to eliminate these things until we completely change the culture. But how do you change the culture? I mean, how do you change a world? We know that it's going to take more than just policies. We know that it's going to take more than just laws. We know that it's going to take more than just changing how we handle weapons. There's something fundamental about people that has to change for that kind of thing to go away. And it can definitely seem hopeless because it just looks like this overwhelming mountain of of violence and overwhelming opposition to everything that Jesus stood for that we wouldn't even know where to start to unravel that gigantic ball of yarn. Um, Well, in Jesus' day, the world was similar. Uh, It was a bad place in his day too. Just like there's violence in our day, there was violence in his day. The Romans were the brutal occupiers who were oppressing the Jewish people who were living uh, living in, in their own land. There were zealots who were the people among the Jews who favored the forceful overthrow of Rome, where they were basically training for war and trying to get those Romans out of there so that they could get their power back. There was violence. There was abuse of power. The way that their kings and their rulers led and the way that they uh, held on to power was by force, was by fear, or even just by hype. And we saw last week where, where Herod had this gigantic party for himself, a birthday party for himself, and he wants to impress all of his nobles and grasp for more power. So at that party, there's, there's food and there's drinking and there's a dancing girl, and Herod makes a promise, and to be able to show off to everybody and show that he can keep whatever his promises are, he has John the Baptist executed. And so the end of, the end of that feast is a platter opening up with John the Baptist's head on it. So there's that that one king and the way that one guy holds on to power. But Jesus, in the midst of all that, steps into that world to show them how the world's really going to be changed. Uh, In Mark chapter 6, verse 30, the apostles, those first followers of Jesus, they've just returned from a preaching tour. Jesus has sent them out and he said, guys, go do all the same things you see me doing. Preach the gospel. Tell them the good news that the kingdom of God is here. Uh, Cast out demons. Heal the sick. Do all these good works of God out there. Go do it. And so the apostles went out and they did it. And they were amazed. Uh, They they were sent on a number of these tours, but sometimes they would come back just absolutely amazed that demons were responding to them, amazed at the response of the people and how the good news was going all over the place. People were responding and there were huge results. Um, But as they came back with all those great results, they're also exhausted from the work. So Mark 6, verse 30, it says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So the ministry is going really well, and sometimes when it goes well, people tell their friends, and they tell their friends, and so the crowds are getting bigger and bigger. They're able to meet an awful lot of needs and answer the questions in people's hearts, but for every question they answer, it seems like there are 10 more people coming with the same questions, and so they're exhausted. Um, ministry exhaustion isn't the same kind of exhaustion that you get from, from manual labor. You know, if you've ever done farming work where you're baling hay or something, you know just that absolute physical exhaustion where you've got nothing left physically. Ministry exhaustion is much more like the kind of exhaustion you get as a parent of young kids, 
where you're not necessarily doing a whole lot of heavy lifting, but all day long you're pouring yourself into these people and it seems like the response is slow, the results are slow, and at the end of the day, there's just absolutely nothing left. You feel like you've poured yourself out all day, you're completely exhausted, and and it seems like God gave you just enough grace to handle just that number of minutes and one more minute if they get out of bed late it could get ugly. And so, so this is what it's like for these apostles. They've been out there doing this ministry work. They're completely exhausted. And Jesus says, guys, you don't even have time to sit down and eat. This is not good. You can outrun your supply lines and get to where you're too exhausted to do good work. So even good works need to be rested from. So they went away. Uh, verse 32, it says, and they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when they went ashore, he saw a great crowd. So Jesus' apostles are exhausted, and he says, you guys need to rest. So they get in their boat, they start going out across the sea, and some people recognize where they're going. So they take off running by foot, and they are there to meet them on the other side of the sea. So you can imagine what this does to them. They're rowing, and the apostles are going, what is that on the shore? And then they come up, and it's all the same people that they were just trying to get away from. Um, so, so they're exhausted to begin with. They're, they're ready to get some rest. And now their vacation plans are completely put on hold because they have all this work that they need to do. And the people in, on the crowd, they just show us what people are like. We're like this where we have very self-centered hearts. We're all about ourselves. It didn't bother these people that Jesus and his apostles were leaving for a reason because they were human and needed to get some rest. These people had needs, and sometimes when we have needs or desires, we can't see past them. We can't see past this thing that I want now, this curiosity I have now. And even if it means that these guys who are already exhausted aren't going to get any rest, I have to have my question answered. I have to have my disease healed. We have these consumer hearts. I know this time of year we hear a lot about consumerism, and, we, and it's usually associated with you put too much on Visa at the mall. And when you go to the mall, you're, you're there being a consumer, and when you spend on Visa, you're being a consumer. And that can be one manifestation of consumerism, but really that's just one small piece of the consumer nature of our hearts. Uh, a consumer heart is a heart that always says, me first, that puts my desires and my needs, the things that I want and that I need to get, above serving and loving and blessing. You know, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of malls at all, but it's not because they're sinful places. It's, um, it's because they're objectively miserable places. Like it's, it's horrible to go to the mall. I went to Walmart yesterday, and it's, it's a mall. It's in that same category. It's a miserable place. Yesterday, it was like aggressive cart driving in Walmart all day long. Um, everybody fending for themselves, people getting thrown off to the side, people just t- tearing everything off the shelves. It was like a zoo yesterday. I, and, and I was right there in the middle of it being one of those zoo animals, loading up my cart, getting mad, all defensive, protective of everything. That's just, we look at that and we say that's consumerism. And the truth is, yeah, there's a lot of consumerism that gets manifested there. But a lot of consumerism just gets manifested when we say, I'm all about me, when you put yourself above other people, and this is hardwired into who we are. You see this a lot of times as parents with young kids, where your kids have these desires, they have these wants, and that's the most important thing in the world, and it doesn't matter who they have to step on to get it. If you've ever tried to take a nap as a parent of a young kid, where you are napping for your life, where you're saying, man, my survival depends on my falling asleep for the next 30 minutes, and then the door bursts open, and one of your kids comes in, can you help me tie my shoe? And, and, and here's this shoe, here's this need 
that is, is more important than your survival. Because kids are self-centered. They just show our, our nature. Last week, I wasn't feeling good. I, I had a migraine. I was exhausted. And so I was laying down for a nap. I never even heard my door open. But then I woke up to my son, Hudson, who's three, smacking my face. Just, just out of the blue. And, um, and so I'm thinking, what, what is this kid thinking? And I turn and I, I, I look at him. He's got a big smile on his face. And, and we've taught him, you can't hit your sisters. They're girls. Boys don't hit girls. But I've taught him that when we're playing, you can hit me. The problem is when you're three, you're always playing. <laughs> and so parenting fail there. Now he just smacks me all the time. And, um, and now, now he's smiling. He, he wasn't thinking up, how can I be a consumer? How can I be all about myself? He was just thinking, what does dad like more than to wrestle with me? And, and what would he like more than to have me wake him up with wrestling? And so, so he came in just being all about himself, being me first, and that's how we are by nature. And these are the people that Jesus meets. He meets some people who are me first consumers, putting themselves before anyone else, and we're like this. And it's not just a problem at the mall. We can be consumers at home in the way that we raise our kids. We can raise our kids to consume. We're, we're raising them to make us look good in public, but we don't really care about blessing our kids and developing them into godly followers of Christ. We can be consumers at work where we go there and it's all about what we can get out of this place. It's 100% about my paycheck. I don't want to actually do any good while I'm here. I just want to get the most pay for the least amount of effort. We can be consumers with our college years and say that, you know, I'm here for a few years. I'm here to get an education. I'm here to get a career path, maybe get a spouse. If you go to a Christian college, you're there. Um, And then once I get those things, then I'll get out of here. And we have have this objective where I'm here to just pull and, and take from everybody around us instead of saying, how can I be a blessing on my campus and how can I bless my city while I'm here? You know, our consumer hearts can manifest themselves in church where we say, man, I just want this church that has the best of kids' classes, but I don't want to volunteer. I want it to have the best worship, but I don't want to contribute. I want it to have well-led small groups, but I don't want to serve and do anything. I, I want there to be service opportunities, but I don't want to go to them. And so, so we, we can kind of treat church like that consumer product, and our consumer hearts can be manifested here. They can even be manifest in our grace groups where we, we say, I want this conversation to be all about me, and I'm going to, to dominate, and I'm not going to be thinking about the other people here. And that's our nature. You know, this is why doctors have answering services, because they know that if they didn't, we would be keeping them up all night long. Uh, we would be calling them at 2 or 3 in the morning, and our concern is not the 30 patients that they have to see tomorrow and all the rest they're going to need to do that well. My concern is that my ankle was this swollen, now it's this swollen, and I want you at 3 in the morning to tell me why. So they have to have other people answer the phone because they know that when we have a need, we get to be all about ourselves. So what would you expect the response to be? Here's Jesus and the apostles. They're coming across the sea. They're ready to get some rest, thinking they're going to be laying on a hammock in the beach, resting up for a few days, and the crowd's all there. Now you might expect for Jesus to flip out. You might expect him to get out with that oar and start chasing people off like they're zombies. Like, no, no, we need to rest. Go away. Go back home. But he doesn't. Look at what he says. In verse 34, it says, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So they're already exhausted. There's nothing left. Their vacation plans are put on hold, but Jesus sees them. And instead of seeing these people as a burden, he has compassion. And he gets out and he starts to teach them many things. 
And he does it because he sees that they're like sheep who are wandering around without a shepherd. And and a couple of things happen to sheep that don't have a shepherd. For one, they don't know the way to go. So they wander off by themselves and get themselves lost and hurt. Two, they make themselves prey to wolves. Where there will be people who want to be around those sheep, not because they want to shepherd them to green pastures, but because they want to consume them. And so Jesus looks at these people and he knows that they've got wolves around them trying to consume them. And we saw it with Herod in the story last week where he was out to consume the people that he led. He was out to consume the people that he was over and and the end of his banquet ends with a guy dying. There are a lot of people out there who would prey on these sheep and so Jesus looks at them and he has compassion. He has the heart of a shepherd, not the heart of the wolf toward these sheep that he's over. Now, by the way, this is important for us if we're Christian leaders. We have to be careful of our motives because we can either have wolf-like motives to lead or shepherd-like motives to lead. Uh, Wolves lead in a way where we say, I want to get what I can out of the sheep. I want to get a platform. I want to get a spotlight. I want to make a name for myself. I want to make money. I want to have influence. I want to have power. I want to have people doing what I say. Those are all the wolf-like motives for leading. Now, leading by itself can be a very good thing. The Bible says if someone desires to be an elder, for example, he desires a good work. But the motive for that should always be, I want to bless. I want to serve. I want to use the gifts that God's given me to be a blessing to his people. I don't want to be the wolf who's out to consume them. And we should be willing to lead and we should, should want to lead and to teach. And it's a good thing to lead worship, to teach classes, to preach, to, to lead kids. We need leaders. We need them all over the place. But we need leaders who have hearts like Jesus's, which is the heart of a shepherd. So Mark says that Jesus looks at the people and they're like sheep without a shepherd. And so we know that he's got compassion. We know that he's looking out for wolves. But we also know something else really important about who Jesus is uh, based on the verse that he quotes here. Uh, when, when he says that the people are like a sheep without a shepherd, he's quoting from the book of Numbers. And this is what that verse says. In Numbers 27, verse 16, it says, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Now, what was going on here is Moses is about to die. If you remember the story, Moses is leading the people of God through the wilderness. He's out in the desolate places. He's leading them. It's been a rough 40 years. They're about to go into the promised land. And so God takes Moses up on this mountain and says, look at all that. Look at the promised land. And Moses says, oh, finally, yes, I get to go in there after all these years. And God says, no, I'm going to kill you on the mountain. You're going to die here. Okay. And so then they say, well, we got to come up with a new shepherd for these people. We got to come up with somebody who will lead these sheep. So the story for Moses seems like it's ending pretty badly here, and they're looking for a replacement for Moses. So what Mark's saying when he quotes this verse is that Jesus Christ is the one who was going to come and replace Moses and be the leader of all these people, that he was going to be a true and better Moses who comes to lead these people in the wilderness and lead them to their ultimate promised land. It's saying that Jesus is the one that everybody expected. You know, we read through the Old Testament, and and it could be called the book of stories with lame endings. Because, because they all end lamely. Like, let me just tell you, the story of Moses, this is how it goes. God says this to him in Deuteronomy 18. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So God gives his promise to Moses. He says, there's another one like you who's coming. Another great prophet who's coming. The one who's going to speak my words to these people. He's coming. 
So that's, that's a good promise. That's good news. But then Deuteronomy 34 at the end, verse 5, it says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And then you skip to verse 10, and it says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So God tells Moses, I'm going to raise someone up just like you. He's going to do miracles, just like those kind of miracles you did in front of Pharaoh. He's going to bring bread from heaven, just like you brought that manna from heaven and fed these people. He's going to have my words in his mouth. He's going to lead and shepherd my people. And then Moses dies and says, and that prophet never came. That's a lame ending. And then you read the story of David. And the story of David is a story with a lame ending. Here's this great king, and he dies an adulterer and a murderer. You read the story of Solomon. It's a story with a lame ending. He dies with a thousand wives, worshiping other gods. And so person after person after person disappoints. And so, so why is it that the Old Testament seems like it's all these stories with all of these lame endings? And the reason for that is that the Old Testament is Christian scripture. And the end of that story comes when Jesus comes. He's the one who actually comes to fulfill all these promises to Moses. So people are waiting for a long time. It's been 400 years since they've even heard from God. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. They're waiting for this one to come. They're waiting for the prophet. They're waiting for the one to liberate them. And then coming across the sea in a boat is Jesus. And the verse that Mark quotes is that verse from Numbers where he's saying, we got to find a replacement for Moses. What he's saying is that Jesus is here. Jesus is the one that you've been waiting for. He's the one that your heart desires. A lot of times we try to explore a bunch of different religions and find that one who will give me satisfaction, give me peace, and give me hope. And according to scriptures, the one, the ultimate one who comes to fulfill all those Old Testament stories and fulfill all the needs of our hearts, that's Jesus. He's the one that we've been waiting for. He's the promised one. And he's coming, just like Moses liberated his people, he's coming to liberate these people. Now remember how Moses did it. Um, the Israelites, they were slaves in Egypt. They were, were working real hard. They were taking away their straw when they were making bricks, so they had to work harder and harder and harder. And then when God has Moses lead those people out, he has them go and borrow gold stuff and plunder the Egyptians. And then they go out and they cross the sea. They walk across on dry ground, and then they turn around. And when Pharaoh's army is coming after them, the sea comes and closes in over Pharaoh's army and destroys their enemies and buys them freedom. So the people are hoping that Jesus will do that kind of thing to Caesar. They're hoping that he'll overthrow Rome, that he'll liberate them, he'll be the one who's come to rescue them in the same way that Moses rescued these people. In fact, around this same time, the Gospel of John says that the people were trying to make Jesus king by force. So they were thinking that he would, would have swords and an army, he would have all kinds of troops gathered, and he would be able to liberate his people and overthrow their enemies. In fact, in this passage here in Mark 6, verse 44, it says that there are 5,000 men that are on the shore where Jesus shows up. Now, Matthew says there were women and children there too, so, so why would you single out the men? And it may be because they were counting the heads of the households, but it also may be because this is the count of their army. But there's a group of people who are gathering. They want to make Jesus king by force. They want to overthrow Rome. There are zealots all over the place that Jesus has aligned himself with. In fact, when he comes across the sea, Simon the zealot is sitting in his boat, and so he's a guy who wants to overthrow Rome by force. Jesus has lined himself up with John the Baptist, who was just killed by Herod. 
So he's lining himself up with the king's enemies. They're probably thinking this is the beginning of the rumblings of war, that our Messiah has finally come to rescue us and save us. And so we read this story about the feeding of the 5,000, and sometimes we think it's like a picnic that you could put on a Christmas card, and it's Jesus picnicking with all of his followers. But these 5,000 men may have had swords and javelins and spears because they were getting ready for something big here. Maybe. He shows up, and this is, is not just a picnic, but this is a bunch of people who expect him to liberate them. So verse 35, here's how it happens. And when it grew late, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So these disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, it's getting dark. These people are getting hungry. And the only thing worse than a zealot with a sword is a hungry zealot with a sword. Um, You don't want these guys grumpy. So we've got to feed these guys. Uh, But we can't feed these guys. Uh, Send them away into these villages. Let them go to all the restaurants, buy something to eat, because pretty soon things are going to get real ugly out here. So verse 37, it says, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? So when he says, you feed them, they come back and they say, do you know how many people are here? I mean, there could be 15,000 people out there between the men, women, and children. And they say, you want us to take 200 denarii? A denarius was a day's wage. So at minimum wage, this is something like $16,000. And they're saying, Jesus, you want us to go and buy enough food to feed all of these people? Um, Because remember, we're poor. I mean, I just checked the cushions of the couch. There's not $16,000 in there. We're not going to be able to feed these people. But Jesus says, no, you go and you feed them. And he calls these guys to do something that's absolutely impossible. This is impossible for a number of reasons. For one, remember, they're already exhausted. So even if one of them had 16 grand in his pocket, even if they had trays of food lined up to feed all these people, they started this story having no energy left. And now they've sailed across the sea, they've spent their day ministering to people, and now they've got to be waiters for 15,000 people. There there is no strength for that. There's not a chance they can do it. So he asked them to do something they don't have the strength to do. He asked them to feed people with bread that they don't have, that they buy with money they don't have. And he says, here, this is what I want you guys to do. Verse 38. So he says, no, check, check your resources. He says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Now, these are not big loaves. Um, th- these are probably fist-sized dinner rolls, which is enough to feed one of these guys if he's not too hungry. And so they say, we can't feed him. We, we have nothing. We have no resources. This is completely impossible. And something that we have to remember is that Jesus Christ still today calls us as his followers to do things that are impossible. He calls us to meet needs that we could never meet. He calls us as Christians to go and make disciples of all nations. That is absolutely impossible to do. I mean, we just look at Rochester and we say, what would it take to make disciples of all of Rochester? And we started Grace Road. It'll be four years ago that we started in the basement in Henrietta. And things have gone really well for the last four years, but we have not even made a dent yet. I mean, we look at our city and it just seems like it's so anti-Jesus. There are so many anti-Jesus thought patterns and anti-gospel thought patterns and Jesus substitutes that people are clinging to. There's so many physical needs and there's so many spiritual needs and there's gospel ignorance all over the place. And so we look at that and we say, we're supposed to make disciples of this place? We can't do that. 
That would be absolutely impossible. There's not a chance that we could be the people who could ever change a world or change a culture. And Jesus has always said that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. But that doesn't mean that that's changed his calling at all. I know we've got a lot of people at our church who for the last four years have been spending themselves for our mission here. We've got some great elders who have worked really hard for four years. We've got more good volunteers than we've ever had who've been working harder and harder and pouring themselves out. And sometimes it's just like that parenting kind of work where it's exhausting and the results are slow and not super encouraging all the time. But that doesn't change Jesus's calling. In fact, it's the reason that we have his calling. One person said this, he says, it's not God's intention that we should in ourselves be adequate for our tasks. Rather, he wants that we should be inadequate. If we only accept the tasks which we think are adaptable to our powers, we are not responding to the call of God. The church is always in crisis and always will be. There will be difficulties, limitations, insolvable problems, lack of people and money, a menacing outlook, endless misunderstandings and misrepresentations, We are not only to do our work despite these things, they are precisely the conditions requisite for the doing of it. So God's called us as Christians to do impossible, thankless work that absolutely could never be accomplished without him showing up and do a miracle. But the reason that he puts us in those situations is so that we will learn to trust in him, depend on him, and so then when something does happen, we're able to turn around and say, it's only because God did this. And that's been one of the, the fun things about Grace Road for the last few years is there are a lot of books that tell you how to, to make a church grow. And for the most part, we didn't do what the book said. Um, like for one, it's probably not supposed to be 30 degrees in your venue on a Sunday morning. Like people like it a little bit more comfortable than that. Um, you know, there should be adequate parking all over the place. Uh, everything should be nice and should smell nice and be clean and pretty. And um, some days it's the opposite of that here. Like it's probably worn up in the balcony now and you guys will get some heat down there pretty soon. It's just, we don't have a perfect venue. We've got a lot stacked against us. There's a lot that doesn't go right, but God just keeps showing up and blessing. And what's fun about that is he gets the glory. And when people will say, man, what are you guys doing at Grace Road? We're able to be really sarcastic and say, well, first we crush some beer bottles and stick them in the parking lot. And um, you know, then we make it so people have to park really far. And then when they show up, we tell them to park farther next time. And they come back and bring their friends. We get to say, listen, God is powerful. God's shown up and done a work. The gospel is powerful. God's drawing a people to himself, and we can't explain it on the basis of our smarts and the great things we've done. This is what the Bible says in Psalms. It says, call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Sometimes God loves to put us into a troublesome situation, so we call upon him, and so that when something happens, all we can say is, God did it. It wasn't me. It wasn't because I was so smart. It wasn't because I, I had thought everything through. It was because God was really good. So that's what happens. Mark 6, verse 39, it says, Then Jesus commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. So Jesus calls these disciples to do something impossible, and now he sits down and he feeds the people. So there's a huge contrast between these two leaders here, between Herod and Jesus. Herod's banquet is in a palace. It's a good time. There's a lot of fun, a lot of food. But at the end, somebody dies because Herod's all about himself. Here at this feast in the wilderness, there isn't a palace. 
There isn't the same party, but everybody's fed. Everybody's given life. Jesus has a banquet, and, and it's always enough. There's a big similarity to Moses here too, because remember Moses out in the wilderness, when the people had no food, they prayed and God said, I'm going to send you manna, which is a word that means, what is it? And it was like a bread that came from heaven and it just showed up every day that he fed them this miraculous bread from heaven. So the people had something to eat. But then after they ate that bread, they started grumbling. They started saying, oh man, where's our meat? And so God sent quail flying through the camp, and he said, here, just whack some as they fly through. And so they had all kinds of meat, but the people just weren't satisfied with Moses' bread. But here's what happens, verse 42, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So Jesus comes as the good shepherd in the wilderness, He comes as the true and better Moses. He gives them miraculous bread after crossing the sea, and the bread that he gives them is bread that satisfies. These guys expected someone who would come and liberate them in the same way that Moses would, but Jesus comes by giving them something better and showing them something about who he is. I'll just give you a few of the things that we see about Jesus here. First of all, these people all expected that the way he would liberate was going to be with swords and by leading an army. But he comes, and the first thing he does when he gets out of the boat is it says he started teaching them many things. So the way that he was going to be changing these lives and liberate them wasn't going to be just liberating them from Rome. He was going to be freeing them from Satan and sin and death. The war that he was about to lead wasn't going to be an external war where his followers were fighting with swords to overthrow their enemies. It was going to be a war against Satan himself. It was going to be a war against our greatest enemy and our sin. It was going to be a war that was fought in people's hearts. So the weapon of Jesus' warfare, the first one that he uses, is teaching. And by the way, this is still a weapon of his warfare today. We have the word of God and we believe in teaching the word of God and holding it out and proclaiming it and and not feeling like that's not getting anything done because Jesus knew that it got something done to get out of that boat and to teach people. Secondly, Jesus shows them here what he's here to do. When he takes that bread and blesses it and breaks it, he does the same thing that he does later on in Mark. Uh, In Mark chapter 14, verse 22, and it says, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So when Jesus takes bread and he breaks it and blesses it, it represents his body. It represents what he's about to do. In Mark 6, he goes out into the wilderness and they expect a king who will train an army, but instead he gives them the gospel. He gives them the message that he is going to be broken for them. And notice how he doesn't even let them feed themselves. He doesn't say, yeah, go into the towns, buy whatever you want. He says, sit down. Sit down and do nothing. I'm going to take this bread and break it, and it's going to feed all of you. Now, this is the gospel that we believe as Christians. A lot of people think that the way you you get connected to God is by doing a lot of good things. You you come to that place where you recognize that you've sinned, you feel guilty about it, and then you say, i got to make this up to God now. So I'm going to do a bunch of good works. I'm going to start working really hard. I'll put, um, I'll, I'll put all kinds of effort into my Christian life now, and, and I'll show God that, that he can be happy with me, and then he'll accept me. But the message of the gospel is that there's no work that we can do to get God to accept us. 
What makes us acceptable to God is that the body of Christ was broken for us and his blood was spilled for us. We're accepted by God, not on the basis of all of our good works. We're accepted by God on the basis of the shed blood and the torn body of Jesus who paid for our sins and made that way for our everlasting life. We believe that gospel. We believe that truth that Jesus Christ came not just to be an example, but to be a savior. He came not to get something from us, but to give to us. And this is the gospel according to Jesus. And, and honestly, it's, it's different than the gospel according to the little drummer boy, um, which I'll, I'll ruin that song for you now. But um, the, the little drummer boy, it's I played my drum for him. I played my best for him. And then he smiled at me. The gospel is the opposite of that. You can still like that song. You know, we, we won't jump down your case or anything like that. But the gospel says, no, I, I don't play my drum to get Jesus to smile at me. I don't perform to get the smile of God. Jesus came and his body was torn so that I could receive the smile of God. So that God could take all of the righteousness of Jesus and count it to me. So God could take all of my sin and transfer it to Jesus so that it's been paid for. And then he smiled at me. Not because I performed, not because I did anything, not because I have this huge, great resume, resume to give him and a lot of good works. I'm accepted by God on the basis of the work of Jesus. So having said all of that, Jesus here also shows us the way to really change things. You know, the consumer mindset in leadership is I'm going to consume these people, step on these people, and they can be torn so I can be made whole. So I can be fulfilled. It doesn't matter who I step on to get there. Jesus says, no, the, the way up is down. Jesus comes and he's the anti-consumer. He is consumed. His body is torn and his blood is spilled so that we can be made whole. And that's a pattern for us to follow. If we want to know how it is that we change our families, change our friends, change our community, the pattern that Jesus shows us here is a pattern of love and laying down our lives for them, of pouring ourselves out, of allowing ourselves to be stepped on, allowing ourselves to be consumed and doing all of that so that people can see what the love of Christ looks like and so their hearts can be warmed and changed by the gospel. When Jesus showed up on the shore that day, he was definitely changing, he was training an army, but he was training an army to love one another and to love the world around them, to be stepped on, to lay their preferences aside, to, to allow themselves to be torn so that others could be blessed. And we're still in that army. That, that's what it looks like today. That, that's what we're called to do in our world today is to lay down our lives for our friends just like the good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. You know, you'll probably have opportunities. If you go, I know a lot of our family gatherings uh, aren't the ideal Christmas family gatherings where there's a lot of tension. There can be sibling rivalry, everybody competing to be approved by mom or dad, everybody boasting about the success that they've gotten in life so far, everybody trying to make it look like they're better, their kids are better, everybody kind of fighting their way to the top. But as people who believe the gospel, we can fight our ways to the bottom. We can be self-effacing. We can uh, enjoy the ways that God has blessed our siblings and blessed other people around us, even if we didn't get those same blessings. Because our ultimate treasure isn't the praise that we get from our mom and dad. Our ultimate treasure isn't the kind of money we make from our job. Our ultimate treasure isn't all these people around us saying that we're great. Our ultimate treasure is Christ. And we have that, and it can't be taken away from us. So that means we can lay down everything else and allow ourselves to be stepped on just like our Savior was. For now, let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a minute, please. 
If I could talk first of all to the people who are here who are not believers in Christ. You're not a Christian, maybe showing up at church at Christmas time seemed like the good thing to do, or, or you showed up with some family or friends, and we're really glad you're here, and we hope that you keep coming back and try to get your questions answered. But a lot of times, we, a reason that we don't come to Christ and don't come to Christianity is because we have this wrong view of, of the way that we do come to Christ. We think that becoming a Christian is about following a whole ton of rules, jumping through a whole ton of hoops, and then maybe God will smile at us. But the way that we become Christians is by accepting the greatest Christmas gift ever, where Jesus Christ came and his body was torn, his blood was spilled. He paid the price for our sins so we could have everlasting life. We don't become Christians by working. We become Christians by receiving, by receiving what Jesus did for us by faith. So if you're in that place where you feel that guilt, you know you've broken God's commands. He said, don't lie, and you know you've lied. He said, don't steal, and you know you've stolen. Then instead of trying to fix that on your own, believe the gospel. Believe the message that Jesus Christ, who is all God and all man, came and he lived an absolutely perfect life. He died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So admit your, your brokenness and then trust Christ. Trust that his body torn for you is enough for you. Trust that he is your bread of life. And then turn from sin, turn from unbelief, turn from any uh, attempt to save or fix yourself. And trust in Christ and him alone. And call out to him whatever words you want. God, I know how sinful I am. I know I deserve your judgment, but I'm turning from my sin, turning from my unbelief, and I'm trusting in you. Now, if you're here today and you already are a Christian, there, there are a lot of idols that can call for our attention during this season. There are a lot of temptations to fight our ways to the top. But what we learn from our Savior is to fight our ways to the bottom. That the way to go to war, the way to change hearts, is by going down, not by going up. Not by becoming more powerful and strong and brutal but more kind and self-giving. And even if it means others will step on us, we can do that in the name of Christ to show them what the gospel is like. We'll have opportunities for that this season. Let's use them. Let's make sure that God gets the glory from our lives in our time with family and friends and when we get into those places where there are many who don't know him.